right, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. Today, my guest is Simsi Nichols. She's the daughter of legendary recording engineer Roger Nichols, a.k.a. The Immortal, uh, who worked with Steely Dan on every one of their albums, uh, won six Grammys along the way. Uh, he sadly passed away in 2011, and Simsi has been in the news lately because she found her father's work tape which contained the lost second arrangement uh, and shared it with the world. Uh, I already talked about the basics of the story a couple episodes ago uh, in the episode entitled The Second Arrangement. So if you missed that, it might be helpful uh, to go back and listen to that. But, you know, Simsi and I talked a lot about The Second Arrangement, uh, but also her father's life uh, and work uh, and a whole lot more. So thank you to Simsi for taking the time uh to talk over zoom uh, i also want to mention she has a uh, youtube channel where she's sharing uh other steely dan stuff from her father's vault it's at i am simsy uh on youtube and uh simsy was gracious enough to share some clips from her vault specifically for this podcast for this episode these are uh, exclusives uh there are three clips I broke them up throughout the episode, so the first is a story from Bruce Robb uh, about recording Pretzel Logic, which I'll play right before my chat with Simsi. Then there's one of her dad talking about the Wendell that's uh, kind of in the episode in the middle. And then at the end, there's a clip of Gary Katz dropping some gaucho lore. Okay, let's just say there was almost another lost song, uh, and this podcast uh, would have had a different name entirely uh before i share all that i did want to quickly touch on the news that steely dan is going back out on tour uh their openers for the eagles you know <laughs> i really have very little idea about what goes into these decisions you know i'm pretty naive in general when it comes to show business you know maybe the state of the music biz is so dire right now that this is the only way steely dan can even happen you know, playing big arena shows with the Eagles. And there is something very uh, 2023 about the fact that Steely Dan and the Eagles, you know, these two bands who have this uh, history and this rivalry, uh, you know, they decide to team up and charge what I imagine will be uh, exorbitant uh, sums of money for tickets. Um, it just feels fitting in a world where uh, a multi-billion dollar giant sphere just sort of suddenly appeared in uh, Las Vegas. And, you know, Donald has earned the right to do whatever the fuck he wants at this point. So just the fact that he's playing shows at all, you know, I think that's great. Uh, as a Steely Dan fan, and I don't speak for all the fans, this is just me, uh, opening for the Eagles in a big arena, you know, not what I personally get excited about. Uh, I would rather see them do smaller venues, theaters, Maybe even a run of something like Five Nights with Donald Fagan, where he's playing some of the Stolo stuff. Uh, you know, all of this is to say that uh, I won't be attending those shows, you know, unless some boomer benefactor wants to swoop in and hook me up with a ticket. Obviously, in that case, I'd be psyched to go because at the end of the day, it's uh, still Steely Dan. Okay, enough of that. Uh, quickly want to mention we'll be off next week. Uh, let's take a breather, give you guys a chance to 
play catch up on any episodes you missed uh, back the week after that. Without further ado, this is my conversation with Simpsy. But first, here is a brief clip of Bruce Robb talking about recording pretzel logic. Enjoy. Told this story before, but on, on one of the songs on pretzel logic, it ends with a gong. And with the Donald Walter, everything was really trying to get on tape what they heard in their heads. And you think, hmm, that's tough. No, it really is probably the way it should be, but you have to understand that. And Roger knew what they were hearing and could understand that. Uh, Art Garfunkel used to speak to me in colors. No, I, I want this to sound more purple. That I do know what he means. Okay. So with Roger, it was that, and they had the sound in the gong, but they didn't want a giant, you know, edgy gong. They wanted this soft kind of thing, but not mallets and this or that. So Roger goes and sets it up and has one of us sit and run the mic. He said, okay, I'm going to go play the gong for this part. And gets done on his hands and knees and rams the gong with his head. So there was like 35 takes of Roger having to ram the gong with his head. So, you know, he, did, he was brave. He did it absolutely bravely and they got exactly what they wanted. But I don't... I don't know if you could have done it another way, but as soon as he did it, it was a, that's it, that's the song we want. So he was, uh, he was a brilliant and fabulous person to have at any recession. He's what every artist wants. So the Rob Brothers owned this really famous studio in the 70s and 80s called Cherokee Studios. And they were actually one of the first bands that my dad engineered like as the he, he was actually the first that was the first band that he was the um head engineer on okay and that and that was because the owner of abc dunhill this um family friend now uh his name is steve barry he, he was the one in charge but he wanted to go to a baseball game and he was like hey raj could you get this session and the raw and my dad was like yeah sure and the raw brothers were like okay yeah sure so they became fast friends. And my dad, you know, I, I Bruce Robb tells his story the best, but the long short is that he and his brothers um, had a ranch out in Chatsworth, California, and they wanted um, to build a studio um, so that they could just go record whatever they want. And my dad was friends with them and went out and helped him them build it. So when it came time for Pretzel Logic, my dad brought Steely Dan out to Cherokee Studios to record Pretzel Logic. And he has some fun stories and hijinks that happened while they were out there at the ranch recording Pretzel Logic, which also, fun fact, Cherokee Studios was next to a place called Spawn Ranch. Oh, wow. For those of you... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, into American crime history, Spawn Ranch is where the Charles Manson family hid out. And uh, Bruce Robb is great to talk to because he's got stories of some weird kids meddling, you know, and and, uh, and he actually has like Charles Manson. So, so that's setting the tone for this like era of music as well, Definitely. which is what I have had a lot of fun digging into. I'm like, this era is amazing. 
it was the wild west of recording. Yeah. People had time, people had budgets, and then you had like this whole perfect storm of talent and you had these engineers that were nuclear scientists and even Tom Dowd was a nuclear physicist and, and they were getting into recording and so they were bringing like their scientists nuclear physicist minds into the recording studio and then inventing this stuff because your dad was a your dad was a nuclear physicist too right or he he got a phd in that that was his he did, he 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 did study so nuclear engineering and um he helped open San Onofre power plant which is a power plant down in um southern california did i also read that he was um high school buddies with uh, frank zappa yeah frank zappa was his neighbor i guess my granny and his mom were friends and Frank Zappa would come over after school and they would mess around with recording, bouncing guitars back and forth. And yeah. Is that kind of the beginning of his uh, interest in, in recording and engineering was <laughs> I guess in those very early days with, with Zappa or. Well, after listening to tens and tens of hours of my dad's lectures and interviews, what I can gather he was working at a nuclear power plant and he opened a recording studio called Quantum Recording in Torrance, California with a couple people. And they recorded jingles. And then he got a job at ABC Dunhill as the tech guy. I think he worked like overnights cutting tape. And I think there was like a few days he said that he worked all day and all night. Like he would work all day at the power plant all night at the recording studio and just go straight back to work at the power plant. Oh, and wow. that's what he did. That's what he did for days, sometimes on end. When my dad died, he was actually in California. My, my parents had a house in Florida and he had migrated back out West to work. You know, it's like my dad's story is not unique. A lot of these guys in the recording industry, guys and girls, they'll have this peak in their career and then nobody calls because they're like, Oh, get me someone like that. Like they don't think they're attainable or they're available or maybe they're too expensive. So, you know, my dad actually migrated back out West to um, teach and he got the diagnosis that uh, he had cancer. Sorry. Uh, I hate saying that on podcast, but whatever. So my dad got sick. We're in California. My dad dies. And here we are in this rented townhouse. He's made you know, a first pass at his stuff. And he did have a, a, a little mastering studio set up in the basement and he did bring his most important things like Wendell and his platinum records. And, but, you know, we still had a whole house worth of stuff in Florida. I think I sat there for six months oh, wow. and I went, I went through every piece of paper. I went through every slide I cataloged every piece of equipment. I cataloged with my mom every book. I made boxes of like items. <laughs> like I am not an engineer. <laughs> I am not a recording engineer. I am not a scientist. But I'm really good at organizing other people's stuff. So... <laughs> So was it fun for you to go inventory all your dad's old stuff in a way, or was it tedious? It was cathartic and it was, um, I think a way for me to process my grief because we mm. were so 
sad. We were so sad when my dad died. Um, He didn't want to die. Like he wasn't going to die. And here you had this guy who was larger than life. His nickname was literally the immortal. (laughs) My dad could, my dad could do anything. He could fix anything. Like those are the guys that die, Mm. but they do. Everyone dies. Spoiler alert. (laughs) So for my dad, who was like the nucleus of our family, this larger than life figure to just poof disappear. It was like, uh, uh, I don't even know. It, it was yeah. it was definitely one of those like hardest moments of your life kind of situations. Of course, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks. But you know, I I took that grief and I got to go and I got to sit and I got to go through all of my dad's stuff and it. I cried a lot. I missed him. There were so many things I wanted to ask him. It was definitely one of those like, oh my God, why didn't I, why didn't I ask him this? And then I would just, I would yell at him. Like, what the, is all this <laughs> SHI? You know, I was like cussing. I was like, what the heck? What is all this crap? I was <laughs> like mad that he didn't go through anything, but you know, he wasn't dying. I mean, he was okay to die. He told us that, but like we fought with him until the very end. Yeah. So he didn't make any plans. He didn't go through his stuff. It was literally trying to put out a forest fire with a garden hose when we got the diagnosis for cancer and then trying to save his life and it not working. It was like, as a lot of families I'm sure can relate, it was like intense. So now I'm at home going through my parents' stuff and yeah, it was, it was tedious, but I wanted to do it. I wanted to take that extra time and that extra care to go through every little piece of paper because he saved everything. It was my dad's job to be able to reference things. I mean, my dad had computer parts from the seventies and we'd be like, oh my gosh, why don't you just throw some of this stuff away? Like, can't you edit? And then one day he'd be working on something and he'd go out in the garage and he'd find that one thing that he kept for 30 years and he'd be like, see, this is why I need it. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, he had my dad had his own form of organization that he did not tell anybody about. Like it was organized for him, but not for anybody else. Does that make sense? Like <laughs> I'd walk into my dad's office sometimes and there was just stuff everywhere. And I was like, Dad, how can you find anything? He said to me, you know, I like to see everything I own. I was like, all right. He had his own system, I guess. He had his own system. So, yeah, there was, like, accordions of, like, Steely Dan stuff. But as far as, like, the memorabilia, the tour books, I I feel like I had to organize that um, during that process. And I made boxes. I made, like, a Steely Dan memorabilia box. I made a John Denver box. I made a dad teaching box. I made a Grammys box. So I just, uh, you know, I even did, uh, I even sorted his wires. We had a whole living room's worth full of cables. I don't know what cables are. I don't, I like, I know an XLR cable. I know like my basic cables, but I just would start to put like with like, and I was like, I'll figure this out later. Um, Did you have a particular then, interest in one of these boxes? Like, were, were you were a Steely Dan fan or anything? Like, did you care most about the, the Steely Dan stuff or the John Denver stuff? 
Well, I knew that's where the gems would be. And I knew that's yeah. what fans of the band might appreciate finding later. And I also loved like finding my dad's handwriting or right. like my dad would keep stuff from the studio. So I've got Donald Fagan writing notes or doodling mm. or stuff like that. Like I liked seeing the human part of what was happening at the studio. So yeah, I saw I was going through it as a fan of my dad. I mean, I'm definitely done looking at all this stuff. If <laughs> it can go to, you know, people that want to hang stuff on their wall, I think that some of this stuff should live on that way. Yeah. And it's maybe, you know, track sheets or um, session notes or Donald Fagan writing out lyrics or... The fandom is pretty rabid, so any of this stuff there will be interest in right like even i love it session notes people will be like clamoring for that kind of stuff they're really cool to look at and i am not even that i i just love history and i love right. archiving and you know i would sit for like a whole sunday and watch american pickers like i love that kind of stuff where they're digging up and they're finding old relics of times past and yeah, you're talking I, I, about being able to go through your dad's, like all of his uh, stuff sounds really fun for me. So, I knew that it was a deleted song and I knew that it was super special just because of my love for gems and memorabilia like i knew about the cassette tape in my mom's drawer and so when we were packing up the florida house it was time to move the desk and i said okay oh the cassette it had lived in my mom's desk since 1980 but so had <laughs> your dad talked about that he had this other tape of the song that might have i mean how did you know sure. about this tape i mean did he talk about it for him it was just a throwaway work tape those guys yeah. didn't release stuff like that. It, it was just something that my dad couldn't throw away, just like he couldn't throw away anything related to his job. But did your dad know that this might be extremely valuable to the fandom because it's the only like living, you know, archive of this song? You know, I don't know if my dad knew it was as big of a deal as it was. Well, I you... knew it was a cassette tape of a deleted song and I knew it was special. My mom knew it was special. She kept it. But for my dad, it was just a throwaway work tape. So you knew you had this tape and then you, so you brought it with you when you were cleaning out your house in Florida. Mm -hmm. And then you took a picture of it and posted it on Facebook. What, why, what was the impetus behind doing that? Why did you decide to share this thing with the world? Were you like, because people freaked, freaked out, right? Yeah. Were you expecting that or no? No, no, not <laughs> at all. I, I think, so, you know, we're we're in the pandemic. I'm looking at all my dad's stuff and there's still things that I wanted to do for him and his legacy. I wanted a documentary to get done. And also we have now been carrying around all of his stuff for a decade. And I think I just got to a point where I was overwhelmed and I knew I couldn't do this stuff. I couldn't throw this stuff away and I, and I didn't know what to do with it. And I was sick of holding on to it. I just kind of got to a moment where I was like asking for help. 
I was like, help me internet. I had, I had lovingly maintained my dad's Facebook like page since his death, just to, you know, kind of cultivate a community of audiophiles, you know, for me and for him, like, I really miss my audiophile. I really missed my dad. So it was kind of fun for me to have these like audio nerds to talk to every once in a while. You wanted but to carry just, on your dad's legacy. Yeah. And I, and I just, I really love those guys, producers, engineers, techies, audiophiles. Like it feels familiar to me. So it, for me, it was also just very cool to, to keep that community around me. Cause I was daddy's girl. Sorry if that sounds weird, but I would follow him around. I would help him at trade shows. I was just like, totally always like just like right behind him or helping him whenever I could do you have a memory of Donald and Walter from your childhood like them being oh, for sure yeah we hung out a lot maybe mainly more with Walter and then Donald we hung out a lot with Walter when we were kids I spent whole summers at his house we had so much fun as kids there were so many memories hanging out with Walter um did you play with his I children because he has kids too right he had kids. yep Yep. Played with his kids. Um, good memories for the most part. I mean, great memories. I yeah. mean, I loved, I mean, what a lucky kid, you know, I got to go to Hawaii for a whole summer one time while my dad was working with Walter because Walter lived in Maui and yeah, I had the best time. So they were, they were definitely like family for a while, but you know, things change. Uh, I do have fond memories of them as a kid. I think last time I saw Donald was like in Y2K and I gave him a hug. I mean, yeah, I grew up with them. I was literally born during the making of Gaucho. Like I said this the other day. I mean, I know everybody has their like origin story. Like my mom has her side of it. But as far as my dad's concerned, if it wasn't for Steely Dan and Gaucho, I would not exist because my dad had to go to New York to record Gaucho and that's where he met my mom. They met, they dated, they got married, they had me and they brought me into the studio all during the making of Gaucho. Wow. So when I moved to LA on my own in 23, 20, at 23, my dad gave me his Gaucho platinum record cause I was his Gaucho baby. But yeah, wow. Um... Because I think I read that you called them like Uncle Donald and Uncle Walter too, right? <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, I I had a um, I had a poster that they signed for me one time when I was a kid, and of course I can't find it because my parents moved a lot. But yeah, it was two Simpsy love Uncle Walter and Uncle Donald. That's funny yeah, because were, I think I mean, America they, sees them as their weird uncles, but for you that they were actually <laughs> someone that you called Uncle. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah 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 they were they were uh really big in our lives when we were kids my dad said hey like you have to think about it my dad spent years working with them and then in between the steely dan or their personal projects my dad worked with walter and produced a bunch of jazz albums so uh they were they were like they were like a big 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 um part of his life too i mean you know these guys spent years working on one album Some and they shared the too. same 
they shared the same kind of vision of like studio perfectionism, right? They had that yes. shared goal and sort of, I don't want to say like workaholism, but like they were obsessive, you know, in terms of the the goals and the the artistic reach that they were trying to constantly grasp for. Oh yeah, Walter was just uh, as much of a tech head as my dad. Mm. I think this term got canceled, but I have an article at EQ where my dad said him and Walter started a club named Gear Sluts, (laughs) (laughs) where they're just here for the gear. Like, yeah, they really loved, they really loved being on the bleeding edge of technology. And that really showed up in their work and it's in the boundaries that they, they, they broke through, you know, if, if, and Donald had an uncanny sense of timing, according to the, um, interviews I've, I've heard of my dad, you know, talking about this and why he had to build that drum sampler is Donald could tell like microseconds if like something was off by just like a hair and it would like, he said, drive him crazy to not be able to come down on his vocal exact and like the drum not be there. And so, yeah, you just, you just had this like perfect storm of genius and drive and desire to like fix problems that um not not that it's not it's not even like it was a problem like they created they created their own problems well donald and (laughs) well donald and walter had a vision right but i think they still needed your father to help execute that vision for example donald and walter wanted a machine that could keep perfect time your father was the person who could actually build the machine, and he did the Wendell. Yep, I, I, Gary Katz said that one day Donald was super frustrated because um, he couldn't get the drum truck that he wanted, and and he, you know, he had this uncanny sense of timing, and he was like, "Can't you make a fucking machine that'll be perfect?" And my dad went, "Yeah, sure, I could do that." Yeah, why not? And I mean, up till that point, my dad was already doing wild stuff in the studio, you know. And so it was just another like, yeah, hey, can you do that too, Roger? And they were like, and he was like, yeah. And they gave him a budget or and and he, you know, went and he'd at that time, he'd already been developing and messing around with computers. And I think he had already been in a code coding class with Roger Lynn like so he was already into programming and computers in I think 1976 so I think by the time they started talking about this in like 1978 my dad had already started building computers and learning code so when they said that to him it was like another challenge he was like yeah I can do that and they were like okay whatever and they just like brushed it off because like okay Roger's gonna try to do something wild again and one day he came in with it and Gary Katz said that they looked at him and they were like, what the heck is this? And dad powered it on. And he said there was like, you know, zeros and ones flying on the screen. And they were like, it was like Star Trek. It was like, they couldn't believe that Roger actually came into the studio with a machine. And I, I've had to take a lot of time to figure out like what the heck this thing is. Cause I am not the tech nerd that my dad was and I and and I've had to have his friends explain to me what it was because it wasn't necessarily a drum machine like those had already existed 
but right. they were really lo-fi and they were like pew chew, pew chew and what steely dan was going for was real drums but with perfect timing which is what donald needed at the time you know yeah. so that didn't exist that did not exist so what my dad did is he sampled drummers um he sampled the session guys and uh, I actually just released with my sister and my dad's protege, a Wendell sample pack where you can actually use those samples now on your records. So that's really exciting. So we figured out how to clean them up and organize them to deliver them to people today. So you could get like, <laughs> you could can, you can get like those sounds that you hear from all your favorite albums and make your own dumb tacks. Like, I think it's great. I think it's great. And there's some amazing percussion gems in there too. My dad, my dad was the best at recording live drums. He really was. I mean, and I've heard people say this to me. I don't think I'm being biased because I'm his daughter. Like he really could record things in ways that other people just couldn't get. So you have these amazing samples and my dad programmed the computer Actually, you know what? Why don't we have him explain it? Well, all it is is just a, a sampling system. It was just a 16-bit, 50 kilohertz um, sampling system that hooked up in the digital domain to the 3M machine. So whatever we recorded on the machine, we just transfer parallel into the computer, edit it, or do whatever we wanted to it, and then when it got the trigger, either from its program internally or from the snare drum that was already on the tape that we're replacing, um, it would then send out that information parallel in the digital domain back into the machine onto the tape. So it never went through extra conversions. Uh, so it just, what it amounted to is a, uh, when we were using it as a drum machine, it was just a, a very hi-fi $80,000 drum machine. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, most of it was uh, all memory based. Uh, at the beginning, we weren't doing any sample to hard disk. Um, so it needed for 10 seconds of ride symbol, like on Walk Between Raindrops. That ride, ride symbol took a megabyte, a megabyte of memory. And uh, when we did that, a megabyte of memory was $16,000. So many variables, it's amazing that any of this stuff gets on record to begin with. It's just, it just amazes me every time I go in, and there's always something new that you run into. A shadow across the blue Miami sky. As we hit the causeway by the big hotels, we fought. Now I can't remember. My reaction was, eh, it's probably nothing. Like, there's probably nothing special on that tape because there were already the demos, and I just figured that anything that already existed, we'd already gotten. And it sounds like maybe you didn't really know what was on there either, like in terms of the quality of the recording, right? No, I was with you all. That tape had never <laughs> been played. That tape had never been played. So I posted on Facebook in a moment of 
not even not desperation, but I posted on Facebook. Just, I had a moment of like, please help me. I don't know what to do with this stuff. And I'm sick of holding on to it. <laughs> it's like an honest plea for help. And so I just started posting stuff that I thought cool was in my dad's stuff. I posted like a dad Walkman and I was like, what do I do with this gem? It's just something that I had in my safe. And I was like, what do I do with it? So it wasn't like, hey, look, guys, I found the the mythical second arrangement tape. Here it is. I got it. It was just like you were posting random stuff. And then one of those things happened to be this mythical second arrangement tape. And then people freaked the fuck out because. Oh, shit. Now what do I do? I didn't know that people were going to freak out. And so I posted it not knowing that it was such a big deal. And once everyone told me it was such a big deal I was like frozen I was like well now what do I do with it I didn't know what to do with it because we're also in the middle of a pandemic I was living in Los Angeles we weren't leaving our house I wasn't going to go to a studio and then I I just I just got stuck I got stuck for a while and then I had all this pressure on me to go get it transferred because every day someone would be like hey, what about that tape? And then I would try to post something else on Facebook and they'd be like, oh, that's awesome. Hey, so did you, uh, did you get that tape transferred yet? <laughs> and I had to, and, and I, and I appreciated the dedication and like the, you know, the perseverance um, because, you know, I do stuff like that too, to get things accomplished. So I appreciated like the energy behind it, but also it was like stressing me out because I, was afraid there was nothing on the tape <laughs> because we had never played it. It had lived in my mom's desk for 40 years at that point, And we've never played it. Right. And then I had this cassette that people told me was like the most important cassette on the planet. We're in the middle of the pandemic. And I'm like, well, Oh crap. What well, now? What? So well, being my father's daughter, I understood that I might only have one chance to play it. Right. right. It's an old cassette. It could, if not played right, get destroyed in the transfer process. It could only be played once and then disintegrated. Like I knew there were so many variables. Were you were you annoyed by all the fans hassling you about this tape? Because I, I do think there's kind of a, a like toxic entitlement that sometimes comes from rabid fandom and i think with something like a mythical holy grail situation it really like kicks into high gear yeah i i was not annoyed i was just more afraid that i would disappoint people like i mm. didn't want them to be let down and me be the cause of that because <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't you hyping up the tape it was just you posted this thing that you found and then everybody started hyping it up from there right yeah yeah they hyped themselves up and then I, I felt a responsibility to do right by them because they were so excited by it that, you know, it put I put the pressure on myself, basically. And so uh, it went on it for years and you, you wanted to make sure that it was done right. Right. Yes. And that took a little longer than I had. I mean, if we were in a pandemic, I don't know, but it took longer to figure out how to do it because I had to get to a studio. We weren't leaving our house. I had to find the right person to do it. And, you know, we were also in this like trauma event. So I didn't really figure out, you know, how to get it done until 2021. 
And uh, I had my friend who was a, 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 a director come and film us transferring it. Cause I was like, we have to catch this on tape. Cause my sister and I are filmmakers. Like we love movies. Like my sister's a video editor. I love acting and producing. Like, so we knew that this was an epic moment. Like, oh, we finally are getting the tape transferred. And with there being a documentary always in the wings about my dad, we thought, okay, this could be good footage for the doc because this is part of his story too. He left a work, you know, cassette tape and his stuff and his daughters found it and it created this big stir on the internet and how much fun, right? Yep. So we wanted to get it filmed and um, I, I put a little you know, impromptu music theater together where like that moment was real. I had all this pressure I'd put on myself about transferring the tape and we did not know if anything was on it. I was honestly afraid that we would play it and it would be like, you know, I don't know, not what we wanted it to be. <laughs> Just like tape hiss, nothing. Just another was... shitty demo that we already have a bunch of copies of because the demos oh, was... have been out there for years and i that's what i assumed was on that tape after you posted it and then we heard nothing from you for a long time i was like there's nothing on there uh -uh. this is just uh -uh. another demo if it was the real thing she would have already played it for us come on so i, I gave up all hope as a fan yeah. as someone who was one of these entitled toxic fans i was like i give up like and, and then I, I came back and you were at least expecting it. And I was you like, really did. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Because you posted, or I saw there was an update like a month ago. And you, you were like, I'm finally sharing the tape. And I was like, come on. Like, it's been three years. Like, what's on that thing? Like, you know, it's going to be a demo. It's going to be something crappy. But you took me back. It, um, <laughs> it was a work tape. So it was actually, yeah. yes, it was great. It was the best sounding thing that we had ever heard. And also, it was a work in progress. So on the cassette tape... Like you don't hear the full um, song. Like there's like lyrics missing here and there, but it's so clear. And then you had the instrumental and then some, another working song. So it was, it was cool because it was a tape that my dad brought home. Cause in theory, a work tape was stuff that they were supposed to listen to, to work on the next day or to, right. you know, I was like, nobody according to Gary Katz ever did that. Cause they were in the studio for so long, but that's what you did. That was part of the process. You brought home a tape listen to it before you went back in so yeah it just took me three years because i'm sorry there was a pandemic and then i went through my relationship failing and divorce and my life was in a complete upheaval and i i didn't have the brain space to figure out how to share the tape with y'all in a fun and um, appropriate manner yeah you and know? i'm sorry if, if the tape caused any added like undue stress because in the grand scheme of things it's not that important but it seems like you know it's it's been a source of you know celebration for a lot of folks in the are end are you kidding like i this tape has brought me now so much joy yeah. now that there's something on the tape and even when i heard what was on the tape i still didn't know if it was like what y'all were wanting because i am not as big of a steely dan fan mm -hmm. as everyone else i am but I, like as far as like i didn't i haven't taken the deep dives on second arrangement as you all have so i didn't <laughs> know 
I saw a bunch of stuff on the internet. I even asked Gary Katz. I was like, can you look through this stuff on the internet? He's like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on the internet. So like we didn't do the deep dives that some other people had done. So even I I was just happy there was something on the tape. I still didn't know if it was something that y'all wanted to hear. No, it was great. And, I, and, I mean, and that was another reason for me to share it because I wanted to be like, okay, here's what's on it. Now you guys figure it out. <laughs> it exceeded my expectations as a fan in terms of like mainly just the clarity and just um because it's by far the like crispest version that i've heard and and you know there's a couple of lines of donald's vocals missing but for the most part it it feels like you know the closest we ever will get to actually being able to hear that song i mean we had the demos that were very lo-fi but this was almost a you know a higher fidelity version so thank you for all that you did to to bring that to us uh do you yeah. feel better now that it's out there? Yes. You have more closure? No. I I could cry right now talking to you. Yeah. And I don't mean to get that emotional, but like all the trauma we've all collectively been through for three years, my marriage ending, all the stuff I've been looking at for 10 years, not knowing to do with, and this shitty tape made so many people happy. It's just really overwhelming, and I've really appreciated the outpouring of love because I really just missed my dad, and I wanted him to be around a little longer, and just there's so many disappointing and heartbreaking things in the world that there's some shitty tape that my dad would never have released, by the way. <laughs> this is definitely like an over-his-dead-body moment, which... Right. <laughs> It's really morbid. It is what it is at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dad hated cassettes. I think I got grounded when I was 14 for buying a bootleg. <sighs> so. Because of all the hiss and crackle and stuff. Yeah. He, yeah. He was just really, you know, you saw what they released. They didn't release anything that was just a rough mix or a no, thing they that didn't have like everybody's stamp of approval. Yeah. It was lost to the ether. Um, so he's probably cackling wherever he is that we're all pumped about some, <laughs> you know, rough mix. And um, I'm just really grateful that everybody's been sharing all their st stories with me. And it's really been touching. I've had 18 year olds reach out to me that have said that this song just hearing it as clear as they've heard it has just moved them so much because they've always <laughs> been such fans of gaucho and this song i think it's something about the mythos of the song too. the mythos yeah it's the saga of this whole thing where because you probably have seen on like discord and some of these other like dan communities like there's all this kind of remix culture going on you know people are trying to restore it and mixing one version with another and trying to attain this kind of uh they're trying to piece back together this lost song and then you put your version into the world and now it's like as clear as we'll ever hear it so yep. i and think the fans are grateful and i'm i'm grateful for them because i'm having a lot of fun now seeing all the youtubes of people now taking on <laughs> that cassette and adding like their rope some people actually made an ai donald <laughs> to place to put in the missing lyrics oh yeah my God, yeah. 
They made a robo don. What blew me away is that literally within hours, people were starting to remix it. Like within hours of you posting it, it was already like going through. People were putting their own restorations up, which is just like incredible to me that it happens that quickly. And I saw like a few people were literally like, um, they didn't see your version as kind of the definitive ending to this whole story. It was like, this is just another piece of this second arrangement puzzle that they have. You know, it was another, I mean, it was the biggest piece. But for me, this was kind of, this was it. You know, we'd been hearing about this lost tape. You posted the picture of the tape three years ago. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, we heard the tape and it was everything we hoped it could and would be. So thank you for your service, MC. I, I am, uh, I feel a lot of catharsis around this whole thing. So, and I think the fans do too. Thank you. Me too. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a journey and I'm, I'm happy <laughs> it with me. Here comes that noise again. Another scrambled message from my last best friend. Something I can dance to. A song Gaucho is my favorite song of that record. We were in the studio back at A&R in New York, Elliot and I, and Roger. Donald and Walter would write songs, we'd record them. Every once in a while, if he couldn't get a track he liked, he discarded the song. His feeling was, we have the greatest musicians in the world. If they can't play it the way I like it, something's wrong with the song. It was absurd, but we lost songs over the years because of it. No matter how hard I would fight for a certain song or so, he would say, we're done, next song. When we got to Gaucho, they couldn't get a track. It was Jeffrey and Rainey and I can't remember who else was playing. And so we got to, okay, we're done with this track. I said, oh no, 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 I'm not losing this track. I don't care, go home if you want. I'm not losing this track. So they did, they left. And it was me and Roger and Elliot and Jeffrey, no other band member. Jeffrey just played to a click track, 85 times, 85 tracks. And I had a chart. And I would mark the chart. I love these two bars. These four bars are good. These two bars are good. And Roger 
I think there were 35 edits in the tape to make the one track. About 6 in the morning, I called Fagan. I said, okay, we got a track. You know, he sort of laughed at me. He got Walter. They came over. He said, okay, we'll use it. And that's actually my favorite studio thing with Roger that we did was put together Gaucho and they liked it. Gary Katz, do you have a like relationship with him or like you're, yeah. you're still talking to him? Yeah, he keeps in yeah. touch. Gary, he really reached out after my dad died and he started checking on us more. Um, he did. Because we had had not talked to him since. I think he was also um, no longer associated with Donald Walter. Uh, it's been a while. And so Donald, Donald nothing, right? Nothing. Should we call him? You have his number? I think they're disconnected, but I do have his old phone number. So. I have I have never heard from Donald. Have you uh, connected with any other people from kind of the Steely Dan world besides uh, Gary? Or obviously besides Donald and Walter, like any other random? Um, Skunk Baxter is a really close family friend. Yeah. I call him my skunkle. My skunkle. He's an odd cat. Oh my God, Jeff and my dad were like best buddies. They were so fun together because they were both like into the nuclear physicist part of things. And they were both into, my dad actually worked for the CIA. And and Jeff Baxter also works for the government. So he's a... that I can't talk about, but... Uh, <laughs> but your dad was involved with the CIA. You can confirm that on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they love that stuff. You know, they yeah. were like in the desert shooting guns in the 70s. And they loved, you know, my dad, you know, working for the CIA, you know, and rock and roll. And they then they would all of a sudden talk about like the physics of sound. And, you know... It was it was amazing. They are definitely both odd cats, my dad and Skunk Baxter.